This week on Geek Explained, on September 22nd, 2010, there came a day unlike any other, when Earth's mightiest heroes found themselves united against a common threat. On that day, they became the Avengers. And now, ten years later, we're taking a closer look at why Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, is the best Avengers cartoon ever. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is celebrating one of my favorite cartoons of all time. I'm not talking just Marvel cartoons. I'm not talking just superhero cartoons. I'm talking one of my favorite cartoons I've ever watched, and that is Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And I'm not going to lie to you. There's been a lot of Marvel content. Uh, MCU has pretty much been running the world for the last 10 years. Um, We even have a Marvel Avengers video game that is... To varying degrees of success, I think. Some people love it, some people hate it. I really enjoy it, but I know people who really, really don't enjoy it. Um, And the comics are arguably at the strongest that they've been when it comes to um, brand outreach and mainstream appeal. But for me, the golden era of Marvel cartoons was in a sweet spot right in between 2005 and 2013. And right nestled in the middle of that was Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And in today's episode, on the 10-year anniversary of the very first episode of that cartoon debuting, we're going to talk about why it is the greatest Avengers cartoon of all time and why I love it so much. We also have the latest weekly review on the newest episode of The Boys Season 2, and of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, so we got some news for you this week. Boy, do we have news. Um, We have, of course, our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Strangely enough, no film news, but plenty of news in our other three categories. So let's go ahead and dive into it. Kicking things off with comics news. We're going to get these out of the way because TV and miscellaneous are the big Uh, breadwinners for news this week. So starting off in comics, uh, we got the official confirmation that the DC Universe uh, streaming service will be a streaming service no longer and will transition to comics only very soon. Uh, This comes off of the heels of the renewal for season three of Harley Quinn moving exclusively to HBO Max along with pretty much every single other Uh, DC Universe original moving to either HBO Max or the CW. There's been no news on Titans, but we can just assume that it's going to be moving to HBO Max as well, if it happens at all. Um, But we kind of 
we've talked about this on the podcast before. We kind of knew that this was going to happen. It's been leaning that way for a while now. So I don't think this comes as a huge surprise. I am glad that they're still keeping it alive. Uh, they're going to be calling it DC Universe Infinity or Infinite. Um which I guess if you want to, you know, make headlines with your comics library, I guess is a good way to go. But I'm excited. The comics library on DC Universe is ridiculous. And I absolutely think that it's probably the best place to go for DC comics if you're looking to read them digitally. So I'm glad that they're staying around and these shows that they have um, produced and really led to success are going to just get bigger and bigger on HBO Max because that's going to reach a wider audience. So I'm excited about that. Speaking of DC, they also have teased that following uh, Endless Winter, which is their big uh, fall-winter event, in 2021 we are going to see DC Generations Future State. Uh, We got a tease of it in Detective Comics 1027 this past week where the final, I think it was the final story in it, or one of the final ones. It's either like the last one or the second to last one. Uh, teased that Future State would be the next big event involving Batman and a ragtag of time-traveling heroes. So it should be interesting. Um, this looks like it's going to be essentially what the Generation slash 5G thing was going to be. And even though there hasn't been any like official confirmation, I think we can all agree that at this point 5G is dead and... To be honest, in this one fan's uh, particular opinion, I think that's a good thing. Personally, just me, I think that's a good thing. And then finally, some uh, some not-so-great news. Uh, Lanil Francis Yu, who is a superstar artist for Marvel right now, uh, has announced that he is leaving X-Men after the... Uh, 12th issue in the series, which also released this past week. Um, this was kind of a surprise to me. Um... Because for a while now, he's been killing it on these issues. And I'm, I guess I'm more surprised that he lasted so long in the book. I kind of expected, as did a lot of people, that he would leave after the third or fourth issue. But since he stuck with that, I was kind of expecting that he was going to be in for the long haul. But I get it. Um, he's got a lot on his plate. He is, like I said, a superstar artist that they go to for literally everything. So, um... Onwards and upwards for him, and hopefully onwards and upwards for the artist. I don't believe, uh, as of this recording, a new artist has been announced for X-Men, but I'm sure that that's going to be coming up very soon. Moving into miscellaneous news. This was the hot ticket this week. Um mainly because of gaming consoles. That's right. The PlayStation 5, Sony had their big PS5 showcase to, I guess, clap back at Xbox the previous week. And boy, did they. They had, I would say, probably the uh, more successful showcase, the more talked about showcase, the hotter showcase for sure. And uh, it came right on the heels of not just the announcement for the official prices for the uh, PlayStation 5, both the, um, uh, what's it called, the disc version and the digital version, that being uh, $4.99 for the disc version, $3.99 for the digital version, which puts the disc version at the same price as uh, the Xbox Series X, and the digital version 
about $100 more than the Xbox Series S. So this was kind of what everyone was thinking the prices would be, but it was good to get an official confirmation, as well as now knowing that the consoles will both drop on November 12th. Uh, this was followed up by some uh, pre-order stuff that we're going to get to in just a second, but I want to talk about the showcase specifically. Um they had some big stuff. They had some heavy hitters that I was really surprised about. Um, I'm going to talk about the ones that I was most excited about slash had the most to talk about. Uh, there were others that were announced, specifically, um, I believe, Dead Souls, um, which is getting, I think, a full remaster slash remake on this console. Looks good, but I've never been a Souls guy. So um, if you are, though... All, all the power to you, and that should be a good time. Uh, but the big ones, the heavy hitters for me, were, uh, first off, they started the the whole event with the trailer, the debut trailer for Final Fantasy 16, which seems to be going back to its fantasy roots. I'm excited about that. I've always loved that aspect. Of course, I love the modern-ish uh, um influences on titles like Final Fantasy 7 and Final Fantasy 15, but I like that they're kind of going back to their roots and digging more into the fantasy aspect of Final Fantasy, and it should be a good time. It looks really good, looks interesting, and the uh, there's a little bit of voiceover halfway through the trailer which says, you know, the Age of Crystals has determined our fate for too long, which to me... Uh, says that this is going to be outside of the um, the crystal universe that uh, games like 13 and 15 settled into. Other people have had differing opinions, but to me that makes that sounds like they're making a statement that, you know, we've talked about the crystals, we've done that, this is its own thing now. So I don't know if that's what it means. I could be totally off base with that, but... I'm excited nonetheless. I've been a big Final Fantasy fan for a long time. If you haven't checked out the uh, episode where I rank my favorite Final Fantasy games, go back in the archives, check that out. One of my favorite episodes for sure. Um, they followed this up a little bit later on in the uh, the presentation with more footage for Spider-Man Miles Morales, which we now know is going to be a launch title with the PlayStation 5. I'm really excited about this. It looks gorgeous. I love the score. Um, it just looks like a blast to play, and I'm really, really excited to check it out. They also announced that uh, the original Spider-Man PS4 is going to get a full-on PS5 remaster, and that if you go on... I went on the... Uh, PlayStation website, but I'm sure you can find it in other places. Uh, there is a Spider-Man Miles, Morale Miles Morales Ultimate Edition, which includes not just the Miles Morales game, but also the remastered Spidey PS5. So I'm really excited. That's the version I'm going to be getting because it includes both games. I can play both games and it's going to be incredible. Uh, they also did announce, though, for uh, PS4 fans and people who may have missed out on the pre-orders, that... Um, Miles Morales will be coming out of the PlayStation 4 as well. So I think that's great. I think that's fantastic for people who, like I said, might have missed out or are waiting to get the PS5 until the hype dies down a little bit. Um, so that's really exciting. The game looks great. One game that I have mixed feelings on is Hogwarts Legacy. This is a... Uh, 
Wizarding World RPG that has been teased for years at this point, but we finally got official confirmation, title, and all that. It looks good. It looks really good. It looks exactly like you would want an RPG set in Hogwarts to look. Um, The child in me is very excited about it. However, I cannot talk about it without talking about how problematic uh, the Harry Potter franchise has become because of one J.K. Rowling. Um... It's really difficult because you love something, something was part of your childhood, and it is now being tainted because the creator of that something that you loved and was part of your childhood is kind of a garbage person. And it's unfortunate. I think it's it's going to mar this game, and a lot of people, uh, including myself, have doubts about actually getting the game because we know that that helps support the creator. Um, so a lot of complicated feelings on this. I don't know if I'm going to be picking this game up, but if you are, more power to you. But the big game, the game that really set the internet on fire came at the very end of the, uh, of the entire event. The, uh... I can't remember his name, but the guy kind of running the thing basically said, you know, we're excited about this. PlayStation 5 pre-orders will be going on soon. Before we wrap up, we want to leave you with one more thing. And then it just goes straight into this teaser for God of War Ragnarok. Uh, The sequel to God of War for PlayStation 4 is coming. Uh, Ragnarok is coming. I don't know. I've seen listings for it, so I'm going to assume the official title is God of War Ragnarok. But they didn't announce it in this trailer that the title was, so title pending on that. But it was basically two quotes from Kratos basically saying... um, War's coming, and you gotta prepare yourself. So, I'm really excited about this, but the thing that knocked my socks off, I fell out of my chair uh, when this flashed up, was it said, Ragnarok is coming 2021. That's right, this game is dropping next year. I cannot believe that. It has to get delayed. There's a cynical part of me that just says it's gotta get delayed. There's no way that they're going to make a 2021 release date. This game came out in 2018. Like, the first game came out in 2018, and there's no way they were able to get this all together in tw- in three years. Uh, with just the development process that we all know about, thanks to documentaries and stuff for the uh, first game, I just, I don't see this happening. But the hopeful piece of me really wants this to come out in 2021. So I've got my fingers crossed. I can't wait to see more about this game. And I'm really excited about the PlayStation 5 in general, which I think this event did really well. What it didn't do well was letting people know when pre-orders would drop because they said during the event and during a press release following the event that pre-orders would begin the very next morning however that was not meant to be because pre-orders suddenly went live within i want to say an hour of the event concluding and gone Within two days, absolutely gone. The mishandling of it was really frustrating and surprising. Uh, I myself wasn't able to get my hands on a PlayStation 5 pre-order. Um, they have said uh, in a follow-up this past uh, this past week that they recognize that the pre-order uh, drop went really poorly, and they are hoping to uh, roll out more pre-orders in the coming weeks. So if you missed out on this... Keep your ears to the ground and try and, you know, figure out when those are going to drop. So 
uh, just fingers crossed. Uh, may the odds be ever in your favor, as they say. Um, but we also know alongside this pre-order news that Xbox has officially announced their pre-order dates in a very classy way after all of the PlayStation controversy. Uh, Xbox basically put out on Twitter, hey, pre-orders go live for the Xbox Series X and Series S on September 22nd. We'll always let you know. So throw it a little shade at Sony. Well-deserved, I think. But that means that as you are listening to this episode right now, pre-orders are live. Um, I don't know. I'm recording this in advance, of course. But um, they are live today. And by the time you're listening to this, you may have or may have not. or You may have snagged one. You may have missed out on it. So, again... Uh, cross your fingers. I've got my fingers crossed. I'll be keeping a close eye as soon as 8 a.m. rolls around to try and get a pre-order in for that, but we'll just have to see. Nobody knows. We're going to have to see, but that does it for miscellaneous news. Leading into TV news, which I think is just as big as the miscellaneous news for this week, uh, we got a lot of news. First off, I want to give a big congratulations to Watchmen. Uh, this past week, we had the Emmys uh, officially, um, this past Sunday, the Emmys uh, for 2020 went live, and uh, Watchmen took home four Emmys after being nominated for, I think, the most on the board. I'm not sure. I would have to look back on that. But they took home, let me look at the list here, uh, Outstanding Writing for a Limited Series, Supporting Actor for a Limited Series for Yahya Abdul-Mateen, uh, li- just Outstanding Limited Series overall, as well as Lead actress for a limited series for Regina King. Well-deserved. They all uh, worked very hard on this, and I am just super excited, and congrats to them. Uh, Also, we got some really exciting news uh, as we, as I mentioned earlier in the uh, comics news, that Harley Quinn has been renewed officially for season three, uh, exclusively on HBO Max. I'm really excited about this. You know how much I love that Harley Quinn cartoon, and I can't wait to see what they do with season three. And then we got just a cavalcade of Disney Plus news that's really exciting. Uh, first off, Mandalorian. Mandalorian got a trailer for their season two officially, as well as a release date. It is going to be. Uh, October 30th on Disney Plus. I'm really excited about it. Can't wait. Uh, I was very late to the party when it came to the first season of The Mandalorian, and I will not make that same mistake twice. Uh, Also, on the Marvel side for Disney Plus, we got some big, 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 big news. So starting off, we have our She-Hulk. They announced that Tatiana Maslany will be playing She-Hulk. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I'm not super familiar with her as an actress, with her or her work, but um, I do know that she was one of the leads for Orphan Black, and I have heard nothing but incredible things, and that's pretty much what I've heard just in general in uh, as a reaction to this. Uh, to this news. Everyone seems to be over the moon about this. I'm really excited about it. Can't wait to see what she does with the role. We also have our uh, showrunners for the Ms. Marvel series, which I'm really excited about. If you haven't checked out our Geek Explained Ms. Marvel episode, uh, just go back a couple weeks and you'll find it. Uh, we have Charmaine Obeid-Chinoy, and I know I probably mispronounced that and I apologize, as well as Mira Menon, or Menon, I... Oh, God, I'm terrible at this. Um, 
both of Pakistani and Indian uh, heritage, respectively. And they will be helming the Ms. Marvel series. I'm really excited about this. Getting uh, true and authentic voices to helm something like this is so important, and I cannot wait to see what they do with it. And then finally, I think the big TV news for the week, if not for uh, the whole month, was that uh, WandaVision's coming. We finally got a full trailer for WandaVision, and uh, according to Disney Plus, it is going to be dropping in December, so it's going to be coming at the end of this year. Uh, unfortunately, that means that Falcon and the Winter Soldier will be pushed back to 2021, which makes me sad, but WandaVision looks fantastic. This trailer has so much good stuff in it. I am just over the moon. They're definitely taking influences from the uh, Tom King vision run, but it also seems like they're taking a little bit of influence from House of M as well, with Scarlet Witch's uh, powers kind of being on the fritz and warping reality. So I'm really excited about this. Should be incredible, and I cannot wait to watch this watch this show we have been like i said before like i've said on this podcast we are currently in an mcu drought and i cannot wait to watch this show but speaking of marvel tv shows that is going to wrap up the news and we're going to roll right on into the main course of this episode the entree if you will which is a full-on retrospective to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Avengers, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. So just speaking as a fan and as a lover of music, that theme song, Fight as One, is one of my favorite Marvel openings of all time. Um, it is up there with the spectacular Spider-Man theme, the X-Men 1992 theme. It's just so, uh, it's everything that the show is. And I just, I love it so much. I just, I, I had to get out of the way. But um, today, as you are listening to this, is the 10-year anniversary of the debut of Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And for my money, I believe sincerely that it is the greatest Avengers cartoon ever. And I know what that means when I say that. I know what it means when I say that I think it's one of, if not the best Marvel cartoons of all time. Um, but I sincerely believe that this show worked as hard as it could to give you an incredible, an amazing, a spectacular Marvel experience. And today we are going to be going into all of it. We're going to be talking about the cast, we're going to be talking about the characters, the storylines, everything that made this 
show sing. But before we get into the actual show itself, I think it'd be good to get a little bit of context. It'd be good to get a little bit of... Uh, background knowledge on the history of Marvel when it comes to its cartoons up to the point that this show debuted on September 22nd, 2010. So the very first Marvel cartoon was Marvel was the Marvel superheroes in 1966. And this wasn't so much a cartoon uh, when you kind of put it up to today's standards as much as it was essentially a motion comic. Um, even though that wasn't really, like, a thing back then, it wasn't really a named thing back then, that's essentially what these shows are. I have the VHS of the Captain America portion of the Marvel Superheroes cartoon, and basically what they did was they took the original comics, the original Lee and Kirby comics, um, and animated them, very, very, like, basic animation, uh, put just the cheesiest, uh, just amazing 60s voice acting into it, and that's pretty much what it was. Each episode, each installment was kind of introducing you to a new character. Uh, this is where you get the Captain America throws his mighty shield, or, um, he's Iron Man, like, those, um, iconic and super campy uh, theme themes for these characters, this is where that comes from. And this really was what Marvel was trying to, what I believe Marvel is trying to do anytime it puts out a new uh, animated project, and that's introduce uh, characters to new viewers, new readers, and get people to want to check out the comics. Um, following this, from 1967 to 1983, we saw this kind of uh, Intro period, the dawn of Marvel animation. Uh, these were shows that involved the Fantastic Four and multiple um, installments featuring Spider-Man. We're talking The Amazing Spider-Man. We're talking about Spider-Man and his amazing friends. All of those cartoons that people kind of look back at as like the classic golden age of uh, animation when it comes to Marvel. And then we got the 90s Marvel Renaissance. This was when Marvel Animation was firing on all cylinders, and this is where we got shows like X-Men, Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Spider-Man, and Spider-Man. Spider-Man Unlimited to a lesser degree, and The Incredible Hulk. If you haven't checked out all of these cartoons, I know some of them have reached like uh, iconic status, like X-Men, uh, Spider-Man, but if, if you haven't taken the time to go back to at least check out The Incredible Hulk and Iron Man cartoons, you are seriously missing out, because those are two excellent entry points for those characters. Um, the Iron Man cartoon is really how I got introduced to Iron Man when I was a kid. And I just, I, I love it so much. Um, there are ideas, there are themes, there are uh, plot lines and characters that are making their debut in these shows and slowly begin to... Uh, to infiltrate the comics in the same way that uh, like a Harley Quinn did for DC Comics, being created for a cartoon and proving so popular that they had to show up in the comics. Um, following this, though, as the new millennium came around, year 2000, and really into the uh, first decade of the new millennium, we got to see 
Marvel cartoons go through some problems. <laughs> um, this really kicked off with Avengers United They Stand. Um, Avengers United They Stand is not a good cartoon, uh, mainly because they were trying to bank off of the popularity of the heavy hitters for the Avengers without featuring the Avengers. Uh, this was a show that had barely any, if at all, uh, influence from Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, the three kind of pillars of the Avengers. Uh, the main character really was, uh, was Ant-Man, uh, this weird, like, almost West Coast Avengers-style cartoon that featured uh, Ant-Man, Tigra, Hawkeye, the Falcon, um, and it's just, it's not, it's not a great cartoon. It just, it's not. Um, there is one episode that I really like, surprise, surprise, it's the Captain America episode, because it actually shows um, character development for Hank Pym, because he is supposed to be the leader, and I'm using quotations, um, and having Captain America come back and kind of like insert himself into being the leader again really it's a it's a nice episode and if you have to watch one episode from that show that's the one I would recommend but it wasn't really the smash success that the rest of these shows were um it was trying to kind of bank off the popularity of spider-man which was probably arguably the most popular of those it's always kind of a toss-up between spider-man and x-men um but this came out around the same time as Spider-Man Unlimited, which was also like a sequel to a technically a spiritual sequel to the uh, Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man cartoon from the 90s. I say the original. We're talking about cartoons from like the 60s and 80s. Um, but this was like they're trying to kind of find their voice again because the 90s cartoons are so very clearly 90s that they were trying to find a new step, a new flavor, a new vibe for the 2000s. And I think this is shown most blatantly with X-Men Evolution. I am going to preface this by saying I love X-Men Evolution with a fiery passion. Um, you will never convince me that X-Men Evolution was a bad cartoon or that it was in any way a disservice to the X-Men because it is incredible. Has it aged very well? Maybe not, but I love it. I love it so much. Um, this was also around the time that uh, Spider-Man, the new animated series, the uh, all CG one on MTV was uh, made its debut following the success of the original Spider-Man film featuring Tobey Maguire and directed by Sam Raimi. Uh, if you haven't, if you're a big uh, YouTube fan like I am, Owen Likes Comics recently did a video on Spider-Man, the new animated series that I think you should absolutely check out if you have any interest in that cartoon. Um, he also did an episode on, or a video on Spider-Man Unlimited. So that's a real nice kind of one-two punch talking about the uh, Spider-Man animation and the early 2000s that I think you should check out. Uh, this was also around the time that we got Fantastic Four World's Greatest Heroes. I have a soft spot for Fantastic Four World's Greatest Heroes, but it is in no way a good cartoon. Um, this was the first in a long line of anime influences when it came to Marvel cartoons, um, but this was just, it, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. I enjoy watching it. Um, but it's it's not a good one, for sure. Uh, following this, though, they really started to hit their stride again in the late 2000s, where you got to see stuff like the spectacular Spider-Man, aka the best Spider-Man cartoon of all time, uh, as well as Wolverine and the X-Men, which I think is absolutely a 
worthy successor to the X-Men animated series from the 90s. Uh, this was also around the time that we got Iron Man Armored Adventures, which was another CG um, uh, CG cartoon. I believe it was on Disney, uh, and it was fine. It basically told the story of what if... Uh, Tony Stark was a teenager during this time, and um, I just gotta say, as a big fan of Teen Tony, um, when you put it in that light, you know, it was good. It, it was it was good for what it was. It was good for what it was supposed to be. Um, you saw all of the Iron Man supporting cast kind of age down into teenage versions of themselves, and it was very inventive. It was fun. It wasn't what I would call an all-time great cartoon. I would still probably put the 90s Iron Man cartoon just ahead of it, if just by a hair, but it was a good time. And as we rolled into 2010, the state of Marvel was kind of in, or at a crossroads. Uh, at this point in 2010, the MCU was slowly starting to take shape. Phase 1 was in full swing and was near completion with the debut of Iron Man in 2008, uh, directed by Jon Favreau and starring, of course, the incomparable Robert Downey Jr., um, Iron Man 2 wasn't as much of a smash success, but it was hot off the heels of The Incredible Hulk, which I think, even though the movie has definite flaws, um, is not a bad movie. And as the Avengers initiative was established in the post credit scene of Iron Man, we got to see this idea. There is this idea, and I know... I know what I said. I didn't mean to do that. But um, that the Avengers were coming. And I've talked about it before on this uh, podcast that when that post credit scene hit and Nick Fury was like, I want to talk to you about the Avengers initiative. I didn't care that we were get getting more Iron Man. I didn't care that we were getting an Avengers movie. I cared that we were getting a Captain America movie. And that is all I could think about for the next three years. Um, but as we got to see these movies roll out, we got that post credit scene with Tony Stark walking in on uh, General Ross and the Incredible Hulk. We got to see more Avengers Initiative stuff littered out through uh, Iron Man 2. The Avengers Initiative was starting to build, and we were starting to see the building blocks of a cinematic universe. And as the demand for more Marvel content began to kick into high gear, as well as Marvel and later Disney uh, getting ready to kick off Avengers hype like we had never seen before, Four, there was an idea. And in 2008, Marvel Animation, to coincide with the smash success of uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, announced that a new Avengers show would was officially in production and would be uh, dropping in 2010. Uh, they partnered up with Film Roman to produce. It's an animation studio that they've used in the past and still continue to partner up with uh, to this day. And the team that was kind of built around it was a team of heavy hitters. Joshua Fine as the supervising producer. We had Vinton Huke. I know I said that wrong and I apologize. Uh, and Sebastian Montez as some of the early directors. Uh, Jamie Simone was in charge of casting and was the uh, voice director. So huge props to Jamie Simone. And of course, the entire thing was helmed, uh, showrun, and basically um, led by Christopher Yost. I know it's either Yost or Yost, and I apologize. I know he listens to this podcast, so... Um, 
I apologize. I know that it's one of those, but um, I don't want my mispronunciation to uh, deter from the fact that this guy created and really steered the ship when it came to this show. And you may have heard that name before. Uh, He was the writer and story editor for this show, and up until this point, he had been involved in such animated uh, projects as Hulk Versus, which I think is a great uh, one-two, a double feature where Hulk goes up against both uh, Thor and Wolverine. Check it out. It's awesome. Uh, He also was part of X-Men Evolution, which I love. Uh, He also had a hand in The Batman, that amazing early 2000s Batman cartoon, Uh, the 2005 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon, as well as Wolverine and the X-Men. And this group of ragtag creators banded together and created this show and on September 22nd 2010 Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes debuted with a 20-part micro series and basically what this was was this was a I said was a lot um it was basically going to introduce the audience to the entire cast going forward using little uh, micro snippets of each episode to not only introduce you to these characters, but also to introduce you to the world, the tone and the villains that the show would be revolving around. Um, And from what I've researched, what I've looked at, uh, the basic goals for this show was to pay homage to the original Lee and Kirby stories, both with animation as well as the plot character designs and all that uh, utilize all different eras of comics as well as build out a fully fleshed marvel world and the question stands did they accomplish these goals let's dive into it starting off with assembling the avengers because one of the things that always sticks out to me when it comes to this uh, this show, is the voice cast. As a voice actor, I have always kind of had a keen ear to uh, good and not-so-good voice acting, but even going back and listening and watching this, because I rewatched the entire show for this episode, um, I was struck by how, just how good the voices, the voice acting, the casting really was putting this show together. And I think a large part of that has to do that the cast was not bound to MCU soundalikes like they kind of are today. Uh, when you look at the current state of Marvel Animation, a lot of them are just, hey, it's the MCU, but not really. Uh, we see this in shows like Marvel Spider-Man, um kind of aping off of Tom Holland's Spider-Man. Uh, Avengers Assemble was always kind of an MCU light kind of show. And this show I thought was really um, dove into what I think, what I hear when I read these characters in comics. Uh, the only minor exception might be Iron Man. Um, this version of Iron Man is much closer to the Robert Downey Jr. version than the version from the comics that people have been kind of accustomed to up until 2008 when there was a hard stop. Iron Man has always been uh, before Robert Downey Jr. and post Robert Downey Jr. and he has never been the same since then. But I think they do a great job in making him still his own when it comes to this. There are definitely influences from the uh, from the Downey Iron Man, but I think this Iron Man still is... Uh, 
able to stand on his own legs. And what's great is that even after the show completed, these voices and this cast in several cases, became the established voices for several characters across Marvel media. Mostly in video games, which I love because it's like I get to play through uh, continuing adventures of these characters. And these... um, these actors got to reprise their roles uh, in games like the Marvel vs. Capcom series, the online Marvel Heroes series, the um, Marvel uh, portion of uh, Disney Infinity, as well as, most recently, Ultimate Alliance 3, which was a huge surprise to me, and I loved getting to hear them again when I booted up that game for the first time. But the main cast, the cast that really is from beginning to end along the uh, team ranks of this were Captain America, voiced by Brian Bloom, one of my favorite Captain America voices. Uh, Iron Man, voiced by Eric Loomis, who again definitely drew some uh, inspiration, I think, and influence from the Downey Jr. Iron Man, but also made it his own. Thor, by Rick D. Wasserman, who absolutely is your classic have at thee, Thor. Uh, the Wasp is one of my favorites. She's voiced by uh, Colleen O'Shaughnessy, who has who is just an incredible voice actor, and she's been in a whole bunch of different stuff, but this is the voice I always hear when I read Janet Van Dyne. Uh, Hulk was voiced by the legendary Fred Tatashore. Um, he is a legend when it comes to voice acting at this point, and he has been linked with characters like the Hulk. So you had to have an iconic Hulk voice, and with the amount of uh, Hulk speaking that is in this show, uh, you had to have somebody who could carry that weight, and I think he does a great job. And Ant-Man, voiced by Wally Wingert, who I always forget voiced this character, but Wally Wingert's so good, you might have heard his voice as the Riddler in the Arkham series, but he does such a great job at giving, um, of giving, uh, Wally, of giving Hank this aloofness while still really showing him as a character full of heart. It's really great. Um, notable additional voices that I would absolutely, uh, want to point out. Chris Cox as Hawkeye. This is my favorite version of any media when it comes to Hawkeye. There's a moment when he, um, they're fighting off this wave of enemies, and he and Black Panther are basically s- set up to hold the line while the big heavy hitters go and face off against the big bad. And Hawkeye's like, yeah, you guys go, we got this. And then more hordes come up, and Black Panther just like looks straight at Hawkeye, and Hawkeye goes, I know, I'm dumb. And I just, I love his snark, I love his energy, and I just love what he brought to the show. Uh, Black Panther, speaking of which, is voiced by James C. Mathis III. Um, He was one of the only voices, along with Fred Tatashore, to carry over into the Avengers Assemble cartoon, and we'll get into that later. But he does such a great job. This is the voice I heard for Black Panther, and it's still the voice that I hear for Black Panther whenever I read him in comics. It's so regal and yet so um, relatable at the same time. He has so many moments, especially like his uh, dynamic with Clint, I think is hilarious. And he's very good in this role. Uh, Ms. Marvel is voiced by, again, a legend in Jennifer Hale. Uh, Ms. Marvel slash Carol Danvers, slash now Captain Marvel, um, is a character tailor-made for Jennifer Hale's uh, voice. She does such a great job. Her 
I think a lot of people know her as uh, Femshep from Mass Effect, along with a bevy of different characters. Her voice most recently when it comes to Marvel stuff is the Avengers game where she voices Maria Hill. Uh, she's fantastic, and she absolutely brings that uh, military... Uh, that really military confidence to uh, Carol Danvers that I enjoy. Jarvis is voiced by another voice acting legend, Phil Lamar. He is so good at what he does, at everything he does. And this is a different role for him, and I really think he shines here. Uh, Vision is separately voiced by Peter Jessup because they were not always one in the same. Uh, the MCU retconned that. Uh, thankfully, I don't think it's been adopted in the comics so far. Um, but this was a distinct voice for Vision, and I really like his delivery for this. Uh, Spider-Man was voiced by Drake Bell, and we will get into the story behind that later on. Um, Wolverine, of course, vo voiced by Steve Bloom. Steve Bloom is Wolverine, uh, just as much as Fred Tattashore is Hulk. I love his, uh, his take on Wolverine, and it's the voice I hear whenever I read Wolverine comics. Black Widow uh, was voiced by Vanessa Marshall, and she does a really great thing where when she's speaking to any of the heroic characters, she has an American accent, but when she's speaking to villain characters and she's undercover, she has a Russian accent. And I love little stuff like that. It's stuff that I wish... Was carried over into uh, more media because more often than not you'll see that Natasha's voice to be very similar to uh, Scarlett Johansson's portrayal which is not a bad portrayal at all and I'm not saying that but I think it gets kind of lost sometimes that she was Russian and that she is Russian and that even though she is a spy and she can absolutely have a flawless American accent we should get little uh flourishes of Russian when it comes to her dialect. Uh, Nick Fury is voiced by Alex Desert. Um, he also does the uh, intro to the second season, and he does a great job when it comes to making Nick Fury sound like a character and not sound like Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, you can tell this was, the, uh, this was very much influenced, but what I love is that the... Uh, version of Nick Fury here is an amalgamation of the classic comics Nick Fury as well as the Sam Jackson Nick Fury. He starts off actually looking very much like the classic comics Nick Fury, except he's African-American. And then in season two, he kind of develops into the classic um, Jackson Fury look with the shaved head, the goatee, and the leather uh, trench coat. Uh, villains are just as good in this voice cast as the heroes. Uh, my favorite throughout pretty much both seasons was, of course, Baron Zemo, voiced by Robin Atkin Downs. He is a legend when it comes to both uh, voice acting and on camera. He's fantastic, and he brings this really great biting... Um, uh, what is it? This biting... Um, venom when it comes to his Zemo. Uh, he can be incredibly sarcastic to people as well as being very ruthless and vicious and i love this version and it has almost everything to do with the uh with this version actually using the uh the purple sock on his face though I, it's more pink in this show but still he is absolutely incredible and he's my favorite villain on the show um red skull is voiced by steve bloom as well and he does a fantastic job uh, loki is voiced by graham mctavish uh most recently at least to my knowledge um 
popping up in Outlander. I've been really enjoying him in Outlander. We've been catching up on that. And uh, you can absolutely, when I saw that it was Graham McTavish, I was like, okay, I can absolutely see his voice here now. And he does a fantastic job. Ultron is voiced by Tom Kane, who is so good at everything he does. And he does a fantastic job with Ultron and kind of his development and his growth across the show. Um, But... You can't have an iconic, seminal, legendary cartoon without the uh, vocal stylings of Mark Hamill, who plays Ulysses Claw in the show. That's right. Before Andy Serkis made Claw a household name, Mark Hamill was doing all the heavy lifting with this character, and he does a great job, like he always does. Uh, Kang the Conqueror, who might be my second favorite, um, is voiced by Jonathan Adams, and he is so good. If you are, um, if you got the uh, news about the new Kang casting that we talked about before, and you were like, who is Kang the Conqueror? Go watch this show, because this is as perfect an introduction to the character as you can get with that character. And then finally, for another notable uh, voice, uh, Lex Lang is Doctor Doom, who does a great job at giving you classic comic booky Doctor Doom. I really enjoy it. And the... Voice cast as a whole really does an incredible job at creating characters that are both cartoony as well as grounded. Um, Captain America is very, you know, Avengers! And yet he still has so much humanity in him. There are moments where you can really see his heart shining through and his sadness at being in a different time. Um, Thor does just as good of a job making this um, very old school, almost Shakespearean Thor feel like he's still a character and not a caricature. And that's really difficult with big characters like that. And I think uh, Wasserman does a great job doing that. All of these characters range from like super cartoony to really dynamic. And the fact that some characters bounce between and all throughout that range on an an episode-to-episode basis is really a testament to just how good they were in these roles. But the voice cast was not the only thing that made this show sing. A lot of times this show was, in essence, a celebration of Marvel Comics. And I think that the biggest reason for for the... uh, for that is that they left no stone unturned when it came to Marvel's history, whether it be in animation, in comics, in video games, in movies up till that point. Um, The show really derives its original lineup from the comics, that being Iron Man, Hulk, Wasp, Thor, and Ant-Man. The first episode brings them all together, and for the first couple episodes, they are the team. They are the prime Avengers team. Um, They also do a great job in making Marvel Comics easy to get into while also leaving a lot of wonder on the table for you to kind of speculate about. Um, We're talking about influences like the... the Kree Scroll War, uh, Annihilus, Korvac, who is such a deep cut, uh, and Galactus near the end of the show as well. Um, they also went to Asgard and beyond. We're talking 
mentioning at least all of the nine realms at different points. Uh, Malekith makes an appearance. Surtur is this kind of behind-the-scenes uh, big bad that they unfortunately never got to actually fight. Uh, but they also had super deep cuts into... Marvel's history that even the MCU still hasn't touched. Stuff like the Masters of Evil, the Wrecking Crew, Beta Ray Bill, Sword. Um, all of these different influences and all of these kind of cherry-picking of different moments and iconic characters and ideas from all of Marvel's history really helped to boister this, or bolster this, um show into being not just a great entry point for new fans, but also a great celebration for old fans and seasoned fans. Uh, the lineup of the Avengers was also ever-changing. Uh, my favorite part of this, when it comes to this aspect of it, is the title cards. Because after every single opening to the show, it would show off which Avengers characters are currently part of the Avengers roster. And I love little touches like that. You would see characters go in and out of the of the team, and that would have an effect on the title card. And I think that's such a clever thing that isn't done enough nowadays. Um, a lot of times, especially with recent uh, recent Marvel cartoons, they just show like the title for their title. The theme song is just. Nothing. It's just a little bit of instrumental, the title card, and then they go straight into the episode. And it's like there's no nuance to it. Um, and what the title, what the opening titles of Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes has chock full of is nuance. Whether it's talking about which characters are going to show up, showing off how the roster changes and ebbs and flows throughout the show, it is so good. Um, Captain America, who makes an appearance in the title card, immediately, or in the opening credits at least, doesn't show up until at least like the fourth episode, I believe. And that's huge. That is such a ballsy thing to do to take one of the most um, well-known Avengers and stick to your guns when it came to the original comics where he doesn't show up until the fourth issue. And similarly, in this show, he doesn't show up until the fourth episode of the show. It's so it's genius. I love it so much. Um, but they also had characters like Carol Danvers, who shows up in the episode 459 in the first season and does what I think Batman the Animated Series did so well with Harvey Dent, where it made it forced you to care about this character before he became a big deal. In the Batman the Animated Series, Harvey Dent was just a friend of Bruce's and had an arc across his appearances and before he became Two-Face, so that when that turn came, it was a big deal. You cared about it. Similarly, uh, in this show, Carol starts off as just a friend of Jan's, who happens to be part of the Air Force and is a longtime friend of an Avenger. And by the end of the episode, after you've already been given, given reasons to care about Carol as a character, she gets her powers. And they slow burn this. Because this episode, I think, happens just after the halfway point. 
of the first season. And you don't get her again until the episode Welcome to the Kree Empire in season two. So it builds up the anticipation of wanting to see Carol become Miss Marvel. And I love that they took the time and they had the confidence that they could do that. Uh, They also played around with the idea of the new Avengers, the Avengers team that uh, was prolific in the uh, mid-2000s, where specifically with the uh, starting off with the Bendis run, where we got to see characters like Luke Cage, Iron Fist, uh, Wolverine, Spider-Man join the team for the first time. And the balls on this creative team to say, we are going to take an episode and we are going to take out all of the main Avengers and give you a new team with only characters that we have given you snippets of in past episodes. And we are going to put them up against Kang the Conqueror. I... From the opening title card of this episode was just floored the first time I saw this. I just could not believe that they would have the confidence in themselves as storytellers to tell that story. And speaking of stories, they had the confidence to tell long-term storylines. Season 1 was Hawkeye learning how to kind of trust people again. He's been betrayed by Black Widow. He was a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who starts off the season as a wanted criminal. And throughout the first season, we get to see him uh, on the run, tracking down Hydra agents, trying to get answers on why Natasha betrayed him, and ultimately choosing to become an Avenger because they're the people who accept him for who he is. Similarly, in season two, you get to see Hank Pym kind of spiraling down. You get to see him start off as this, you know, Conflicted character because uh, Ultron is a big, heavy hitter, uh, multi-part episode that happens in the first season, and he blames himself, rightfully so, to be honest, um, for Ultron happening, and you get to see throughout the second season him kind of spiraling down, leaving the Avengers, um, sticking to himself, losing the Ant-Man suit, and becoming ultimately Yellow Jacket, who is the most flawed version of Hank Pym and the one one who is the most, let's say, controversial uh, version of the character. And even though they didn't go as far as to have him beat Jan, like in the comics, they they went right up to the line, and I applaud them for that. Basically telling that same um, gravity of a story while not going that far when it comes to actual physical violence, and I really appreciate that. Um, They also, alongside just individual character arcs, they put a specific um, emphasis on serialized storytelling. And what I mean by that is that in this show, from start to finish, everything matters and continuity counts. A character who runs into someone in one episode will remember their interactions with that character in another episode. And I know that it sounds like uh, no big deal and like common sense, but you would be surprised how many characters in so many cartoons nowadays will just run into a character for the first time and then episodes down will run into this character and be like, who is that? So I really appreciate the fact that things and moments that happen between these characters are always called back to. Um, character relationships specifically grow and change across this show. You get to see 
Hank Pym and Wasp's relationship grow and blossom up till the end of season one and then deteriorate into nothing by the end of season two. And it's heartbreaking. It's sad because you want these crazy kids to get together, but you just know that they're too different and Hank is so unstable as a person. Uh, similarly, Captain America and Iron Man have this great um, budding friendship slash rivalry throughout the first season that really grows into a true and genuine friendship across the show. And I love that. I love that these characters grow and change across the show and that they are not the same characters in episode one that they are in episode 26 of season two it's fantastic and you really get to see these characters grow uh not just in their uh not just in their plot not just in their voice acting but also in their designs the designs themselves have clear kirby influences a lot of you know um broad shoulders uh square jaws but they also um take certain different influences from all forms of animation some i would say uh wasp is a prime example of like an anime influence and this is one of if not my favorite uh designs for janet van dyne i think it's fantastic um most characters actually use their original comic designs in this show hawkeye for all of his ridiculous purple and blue glory is front and center they didn't decide to go with the ultimate hawkeye they didn't decide to go with a weird um uh amalgamation of comics hawkeye and real world hawkeye like they do in the mcu they went straight for the uh fin-headed uh mask that hawkeye wears and the character is all the stronger for it uh similarly miss marvel is given her original comics design with the uh red and black bodysuit the long red scarf and not only does it make them visually striking but you can also see um a picture of like a Miss Marvel from this cartoon. I just hit the mic. Um, uh, Miss Marvel from Earth's Mightiest Heroes and uh, Captain Marvel from uh, Avengers Assemble. And you can know which shows they come from. And you can look at how Carol Danvers is portrayed today as Captain Marvel. And you will absolutely be able to pick out, okay, this is from Earth's Mightiest Heroes when you see that uh, Carol Danvers design. And... I would say they did that with a lot of characters. They brought certain designs. Most people are um, more familiar with Miss Marvel's, um, they call it the swimsuit design, where it's just all black with the red sash and the uh, lightning bolt. It's not a lightning bolt, I know, but it's, it looks like a lightning bolt. Um, but they decided to go back into those original uh Lee, Kirby, etc. designs to show that they really are paying homage to these classic eras of these characters. Um, And with this, they weren't afraid to get too quote-unquote comic booky when it came to the designs. Um, Zemo! I have to I have to talk about it. Zemo has his purple sock over his face and I think that they could have absolutely tried to make it more quote unquote real world aesthetic, but they decided to lean really heavily into those classic uh 50s and 60s designs and I I really applaud them for it. And they this allowed them to let the designs tell a story. Uh, specifically with uh, Captain America and Thor. In season two, both characters go through a pretty uh, drastic character design shift. Uh, Cap is wearing his Ultimates costume, which I just 
when they revealed that design, I was head over heels for it. But they did a great job in making sure you paid attention to this design shift because it allowed you to say, okay, this is the imposter Captain America. And our Captain America still uses the true blue uh, original Captain America design. Similarly with Thor, he went through a whole thing where he was using his original comics costume um, throughout the first season and into the second season. But after a run-in with uh, heading back home to Asgard, a very um, interesting episode with uh, Beta Ray Bill, he returns at the 11th hour during the secret invasion story, decked out in his new um, J. Michael Straczynski uh, costume, and I absolutely adore that. And it shows growth in these characters, whether it's showing, whether it's being able to differentiate an imposter character from the original, or showing growth in the character and how their worldview has changed. I think it's really important that you are able to tell a visual story as well as an audio story when it comes to these cartoons. So I would say for that first criteria in their goals, playing an homage to uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby's original stories. Big ol' fat check mark with that. Speaking of stories, though, uh, this show really got into the, what I would say, are the Earth's mightiest stories uh, when it comes to the history of the Avengers. And they weren't afraid to dabble in all eras. They weren't afraid to take these characters and put them in situations that they may not be involved with in the comics and kind of showing how they would react in those stories. In season one, the first season starts off, there's a little bit of assembly required when it comes to the Avengers. None of them really trust each other at the beginning. Um, Iron Man is still trying to kind of hold the team together, and he's tentative team leader. Um, but you get to see these differing personalities. Uh, Hank and Janet are very different from um, Iron Man and Thor, and Hulk is just all over the place, and no one trusts him. And so you get to see these character conflicts very early on, and that's something that I think has always been um, just kind of across the board and for a lot of people more interesting about the Avengers when you put them up against the Justice League, and that the Justice League has always been kind of set up as like the super friends. They all are on the same page in the Silver Age. They were all the same character, just with different designs. But with the Avengers, they were different characters, and there was a lot of conflict there, and you get to see that throughout this show. Uh, season 1 also features the return of Captain America, I think in one of the best versions of that, of his dethawing, them finding him in the Arctic, him waking up, battling the Avengers, and then finding out he really did wake up, you know, decades later, is so good, and it kicks off this great arc with him. And his arc, I would say, in the first season more or less climaxes with the introduction of the Masters of Evil, which is so primed for an MCU adaptation that it is a wonder, a shock, and a shame that they haven't dipped into that yet. The Masters of Evil is such an easy thing to do, and it makes so much sense. And the roster that they got for this, we're talking Zemo, we're talking Enchantress, we're talking Abomination, all of these characters 
that are not just polar opposites of their heroes, but also challenge both their original heroes as well as the other members of the Avengers in meaningful and interesting ways. Uh, this season also introduces us to Hydra, AIM, and MODOK. That's right, MODOK, who is running AIM in this show, essentially, um, is so good. He's so good in this show, and it's prime MODOK. But Hydra is also this kind of uh, force this um this global superpower that is run by uh, Baron von Strucker and you get to see the return of Zemo you get to see him conflicting with Strucker over this we get to see the cosmic cube in another fantastic episode from the first season uh the big heavy hitters i would say from this um from this season are Kang and Ultron, each of them getting multiple episode arcs. Uh, I prefer Kang just because I'm a Kang guy, but both of them are incredible and tell not just great introductory stories to these villains, but also challenge the heroes that they affect. Kang is focused on Captain America because he believes that he is the reason that the world ends. Similarly, Ultron is absolutely focused on not just subduing, but putting Hank off of the board to the point that Hank Pym has to bring himself out of a self-imposed retirement to try and shut down his creation. And the journey that each of those characters go on across their arcs not doesn't only just make for an incredible story, but also opens the door for further stories. This season also does a great job in teasing a larger world for the show. Uh, there's references, you know, we get to see the Fantastic Four at one point. Uh, the episode 459 talks about the Kree with part of our Avengers roster having to go up against a Kree sentry. And what it does is it sets up everything that we're going to see in season two while also telling great um contain stories for season one. Uh, the big overarching villain for the first season is Loki. He's the one who's kind of, you know, moving the pieces here and there throughout the season and the uh, finale to the first season where the Avengers are pulled into Asgard to try and liberate it from Loki and they're scattered across the nine realms. I think is a great job and an incredible finale and harkens back again to the original Avengers story having Loki be the one that ultimately brings these characters together. And not only that, not only does it tell a great self-contained story, but it also leaves you on an incredible cliffhanger where the heroes return to Avengers Mansion having won the day, a day, a day unlike any other. And uh, Captain America is confronted by a scroll and possibly replaced. Teasing Secret Invasion and leaving us with just an incredible need to see Season 2. And Season 2 really is essentially the Kree Skrull War. The first half of the season is all about the Secret Invasion. Secret Invasion is one of my favorite mar modern Marvel uh, events. It's so good the way it's executed, and in this show, you get to see, essentially, these 60s-era characters uh, put into a modern storyline, and it's magic. It's so good. They even do a... Um, a bait and switch where they try to get you be to believe they do everything in their power to make you believe that the Avengers in this entire season are scrolls. They have uh, basically they tell the story where in the comics, a 
uh, Quinjet or a Skrull ship crashes into um, crashes into the Savage Land. They go and investigate, and there are all these heroes who are like, "Oh, we've been gone for a while." Um, and this episode does it too, and it's so good. And I could absolutely see for a younger viewer being like, "Oh my god, I've been watching Skrulls this entire time," and it's so well done that I just I think that the um, the Secret Invasion is incredibly well done. But most of this first half involves a Captain America who you absolutely, you know, as part of dramatic irony, know is a Skrull. You get to see at one point an homage to Cap's kooky quartet, where Iron Man disbands the Avengers, and the only Avengers left are Captain America, uh, Wasp, Hawkeye, and the Hulk. So I love that. I'm a big fan of the kooky quartet era. So... This was a great thing for me. But speaking of Captain America, this show, this show really does a great job in telling the tale of the fall of Captain America, where um, Cap starts to, as Skrull Cap, uh, begins to betray all of his friends slowly, one by one, the biggest betrayal being of the Hulk. And then at the end, when the Skrulls make themselves known, Captain America, or Skrull Cap, stands in front of the entire world and says surrender the scrolls are here to help and when cap returns defeats his uh scroll counterpart and retakes his place in the avengers the subsequent episode is so good in that it shows that people now distrust cap and i've never seen this confirmed i've never um heard anybody actually talk about it so all i can go on is my own speculation but i could absolutely see this arc um not just that one episode along came spider but also the arc of this um secret captain america underline undermining all of his avengers friends as well as shield uh betraying the world and then leaving the original steve rogers to pick up the pieces as a definite influence on the secret empire event that we talked about um uh last uh few episodes ago so i think it's just it's so well done and to watch this character be put in a place that he has never been in before where people don't trust him is a great through line for him throughout the second season we also get to see as i mentioned before the passing of the ant-man torch where uh scott lang is officially given the ant-man suit after stealing it from hank pym we even get a brief super brief uh, look into the Annihilation Wave with Assault on 42, which is an episode that is entirely in one location in the uh, Negative Zone Prison 42. And the prisoners, as well as the Avengers trapped in the prison, have to contend with Annihilus and his Annihilation Wave trying to tear them all apart and eat them, essentially. Uh, this season also has... The Winter Soldier and the Return of the Red Skull in his identity as Del Rusk. Take a second. Rearrange to let... Yeah, you get it. You get it. Um, but it's it's so well done l linking that story across Season 2. Having the Winter Soldier first uh, show up in an episode when uh, Skrullcap is still there. And then him showing up later on as part of Code Red. Um... And then giving him an actual episode to tell us, oh, Winter Soldier's here, and he's Bucky. And they trace that all the way back to the very first instance of this character uh, being in the Cosmic Cube episode of season one. Uh, 
They leave that breadcrumb in season one and don't follow up on it until the back half of season two. And again, just the balls that they would, that is on this creative team is fantastic. We also get the Red Hulk saga, which hasn't been really adapted a whole lot. Um, I'm not counting Hulk and the Agents of Smash. I don't, that's not a good show. Um, I'm sorry for the people who worked on it. I just, it's, it's not my cup of tea, but, uh, the Red Hulk is utilized really well. And the mystery of who it is, is I think for those of you who don't know who it is done really well, and they leave the clues around the episodes so that you are able to figure it out for yourself. But if you don't know, it's still a shock and surprise. And of course, the finale of this series, probably I would say the last three to four episodes is uh, essentially Operation Galactic Storm. We get to see the first half being really about the Skrulls and the back half being about the Kree. And I just think that it's just as good, if not better, than the Asgard finale from season one. And it wraps everything up with the coming of Galactus at the end of season two. And the clear influences on these sh- on this show and on these arcs we're talking the original origin of the avengers the origins of characters like hawkeye and black widow who never officially joins the team um the origin of ultron secret invasion the kree scroll war uh captain america's winter soldier uh the new avengers arc as well as Little touches even from the Ultimates universe when it comes to Cap's design, the budding friendship between Cap and Wasp. um, They really decided to take everything that they could and take these, um, I would say, distilled down to the iconic versions of these characters and put them through um, stories that they had never been in before. Uh, Captain America was dead before Secret Invasion came out. So we get to see what his influence on that story would be in this show. And in that, I would say, utilizing all heirs of of comics, which means uh, goal number two, big old checkmark. And what the show did really well, I would say um, just as much as telling great stories, was introducing little tidbits of a larger Marvel Universe going on at the same time. Uh, We're talking Spider-Man and the Along Came a Spider, New Avengers, and uh, finale episodes. Uh, They tease the X-Men. They tease multiple X-Men in the episode Infiltration, but we actually get to see in his flesh, blood, and adamantium glory Wolverine show up in the New Avengers episode, and one of my favorite pairings of all time, Wolverine and Spider-Man. Uh, We also get multiple episodes featuring the Fantastic Four, showing them off in the first season, as well as being the debut episode of season two. Uh, We also get what most people call the Defenders nowadays, but is really just the Heroes for Hire uh, when it comes to Iron Fist and Power Man Luke Cage. And we even get an entire episode, the Korvac episode, dedicated to introducing you to the Guardians of the Galaxy. So what it does a great job of is not just telling the stories of the characters we have, but also informing the audience that, hey, at the same time, stories with all these other characters are going on at all points of the universe. And to that, building out a fully fleshed Marvel world, big old check mark on that. So with all of these uh, things going for it, telling great stories with great characters and a great cast, what happened? Why did this show disappear? Well, I think there are a few... Um, I would say a few factors that go into this. Uh, Firstly, and 
I would say probably the biggest factor was the acquisition of Marvel by Disney in Dece- on December 31st, 2009. At this point, Earth's Mightiest Heroes had already been in development for about a year, and Disney acquiring Marvel is the turning point, not just for Marvel Comics, but really for superhero media as a whole. Um, in April 2012, Ultimate Spider-Man debuted alongside Earth's Mightiest Heroes Season 2, uh, though they were very clearly different continuities. However, this did prove uh, to be a little controversial, because when the episode Along Came a Spider came out and featured Drake Bell as the voice of Spider-Man, Josh Keaton, who voiced uh, Spider-Man in The Spectacular Spider-Man, was not shy about talking about how he recorded his own lines for Spider-Man in that episode and was subsequently replaced by Drake Bell. And I'm not throwing any shade at Drake Bell. He's doing a job. I throw shade at Marvel and Disney because they wanted to align their properties and make make it so that everyone was... You know, on the same page, even though they were very clearly not. Ultimate Spider-Man featured character designs of Avengers that were so different from the Avengers in Earth's Mightiest Heroes that there's no way you could look at them as the same universe. And though the um, animation style between Spectacular Spider-Man and Earth's Mightiest Heroes was distinctly different, there was enough wiggle room there and enough of the... Um, creative team behind both shows involved that you could make the link that even though Spectacular Spider-Man ended, this would be a continuation of his stories in that universe. And it's never really been um, confirmed by Disney, Marvel, or anybody that he was replaced. But Josh Keaton, again, has made statements before that he was replaced. And it sucks because, um, and again, no shade to Drake Bell whatsoever, but I love Spectacular Spider-Man in a way that I've never really loved the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. And the Josh Keaton Spider-Man is so well tailored for Earth's Mightiest Heroes that it's a shame that we're never going to get to hear his voice in that show. Um, in May of 2012, just a month after both shows debuted, um, Marvel Studios' The Avengers premieres, and that was a paradigm shift. Again, not just for Marvel and Disney, but for superhero media in general. And after that, after The Avengers premiered, that film uh, breaking box office records at the time, proving that superhero films were, or could stand on the sh- at the same level of blockbusters like Star Wars, um, it really shifted the direction that Marvel was going to go under the umbrella of Disney. And Disney, again, wanted to align all media basically under one umbrella. And since Ultimate Spider-Man was the new normal, debuting for the first time, like I said, just a month before uh, the Avengers did, they wanted to align it with that. And even though... um, Ultimate Spider-Man was very distinctly based on the Ultimate Universe, Earth's Mightiest Heroes was not. And it was essentially a holdover from the previous regime when it came to Marvel Animation. And with Disney wanting to put their own stamp on these things, they wanted to make sure everything was together. So, 
On July 14th, 2012, just a couple months after Earth's Mightiest Heroes Season 2 debuted, uh, Avengers Assemble was announced to succeed Earth's Mightiest Heroes at the end of Season 2. Um, the new series was set in the Ultimate Spider-Man continuity, sharing not just uh, character designs, but voice cast, um, general tone, as well as animation. And this was a big push and a general effort by Disney and by Marvel to bring Marvel media closer to the MCU. We see this all over the place now where the comics will shift to become closer to their MCU counterparts and animation was no different. So on November 11th, 2012, the last episode, uh, Avengers Assemble, ironically enough, was the title of this episode, uh, aired officially bringing a close to Earth's Mightiest Heroes, and the series officially ended on May 5th of 2013. Um, And that last episode sure went out with a bang. They said in this announcement when Avengers Assemble was announced that um, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but it's like, Earth's Mightiest Hero, it's not that Earth's Mightiest Heroes never happened. They're going to go out with a bang, and this is going to want people to see what happens next. Um, like I said, it's very clearly different uh, Earths, per se. Um, you could see uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes as 616, and, of course, um, uh, Ultimate's universe being the ultimate spidey and avengers assemble and everything that kind of spun out of that but for me looking at it there were never any episodes from either avengers assemble or uh ultimate spider-man that really captured my imagination when it came to these characters which i think is a great segue to my top five episode slash arcs of the show we're going to get into the legacy of the show in just a bit but just for a second i just want to gush i've given you a lot of exposition i've given you a lot of just general info i want to gush a little bit um these are my top five episodes slash arcs because there are stories that kind of go across several episodes this is in no particular order i couldn't bring myself to rank them even though i am a ranking guy um but my five favorite episodes are uh season one of Season 1, Episode 14, Masters of Evil. This is the f- debut of the Masters of Evil. They've been building it across the previous episodes, and this was the culmination of that. Baron Zemo and the rest of his Masters of Evil invading Avengers Mansion, and you get to see different uh, fights, different characters versus different villains, and the way that they are able to go about... Uh, defeating the Masters of Evil is so clever and so well traced throughout the episode that it's just, it's, this is a great intro episode for people to jump on board. Uh, Similarly, as I was talking about earlier, episodes uh, 17 through 19 of season one are the Kang arc, the Kang intro arc, Um, Come the Conqueror, Kang Dynasty, and I forget the last, um, the last episode um, of this arc, but this is your Kang intro course. These three episodes are not just introducing you to the character of Kang, but also putting a big influence and a big spotlight on Captain America as a character in the show. I'm biased. I recognize that. If I, if I had my way, every episode would be a Captain America episode on this list. 
But I had to show some restraint and really get into why I love the show because I don't just love the show because they did an incredible job with Captain America. I love the show because they touched on everybody, on every character and made them matter and matter in no more a a story than in episodes 10 through 12 of season two, which is your secret invasion arc. We have uh, episode number 10, which is uh, prisoner of war episode 11, which is infiltration. And then episode 12, which is secret invasion. Um, all three of these episodes are a trilogy of getting you one of the best arcs in the entire show. This is Captain America escaping from the Skrulls to get back to Earth, the secret invasion going down, and the Avengers questioning who they can trust. It is so well done and is the culmination of the first half of Season 2 and is just incredible Avenger storytelling. Similarly, and this might be a surprise to some people, uh, Season 2, Episode 19, entitled Emperor Stark, is one of my favorite episodes. This involves the Purple Man, Kilgrave, uh, from Jessica Jones fame. Uh, this is an episode that I think does a great job in telling the story of how much the Avengers mean to not just themselves, but also to the wider world. Uh, Vision goes to sleep. Uh, to undergo some repairs, wakes up 30 days later to find the world is run by Tony Stark. And as we come to find out, the day that Vision went to sleep and started his repairs, Tony Stark apprehended the Purple Man, and the Purple Man was able to get into Tony Stark's mind. They were able to disband the UN, bring the umbrella of the entire world's government under Tony Stark and the Avengers. And it's just a fantastic story on what the Avengers mean to the world and also a great spotlight episode for Tony Stark. Um, you get to see the vision kind of be our lead for the very first time in this show. And I also, I just think it's a great uh, thesis statement on Tony Stark, on Captain America, on the Vision, and on what the Avengers mean to the world. But of course, uh, the top five wouldn't be complete without episode 26 of season two, Avengers Assemble. The finale, the season finale of season two, the series finale of the entire show. Um, this is everything. This is pure Marvel storytelling, taking almost every single hero that we've seen in the Avengers up till this point and pitting them up against Galactus and his heralds. Um, the episode does exactly what it needs to, and I applaud them for that. Some people may be like, oh, Galactus deserves his own, you know, two-part, three-part episode, just like, you know, Kang, Secret Invasion, Ultron. But people often forget that the original Galactus story was three issues, and really only two and a half of those issues, because the last half of issue three is talking about Johnny Storm going off to college. And it's like, it's so great that you could tell this story in one episode and distill what makes these characters work, what makes this world work, and what makes this uh, Avengers roster so important um, in one single episode, that it is a miracle that they were able to get this going. And all of these episodes, I would say, check them out if you just want the distilled Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes experience. Check out these episodes. They are absolutely worth your time. But going into kind of wrapping this up here, um, for our main segment at least, uh, what was really overall the legacy of Earth's Mightiest Heroes? And I think that 
simply put, it is a fantastic, if not a perfect, and I don't like using that word, but it is a perfect entry point for young Marvel fans to get into deeper comics characters and stories. Uh, most people who are Marvel fans nowadays, they have no idea who Kang is. They have no idea about the secret invasion. They might a little bit because we've gotten Marvel. But the Masters of Evil is a foreign concept to them. And this show really does a great job in not just getting you to understand who these characters are, but want to see more of them. Um, this show also did a great job in setting up a lot of character relationships that would, as we see now, play into the MCU. We see the ideas of, you know, um, character dissension, of characters coming together that may have had interactions in the comics but never really had a quote-unquote relationship show up have great stories together and we now get to see them in all of their live action glory in the mcu and what this as i mentioned before was great for when it comes to a uh, voice acting perspective is these voice actors continue to reprise their roles in different media i talked about it before um but getting to hear these characters getting to hear um Thor and Captain America show up in Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3, say what you will about that game, um, but hearing those voices and just kind of, in my own headcanon, imagining these are just the continuing stories of the Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes crew warms my heart and it makes me so excited to have this kind of time-in-a-bottle um, effect when it comes to Earth's Mightiest Heroes, because since 2013, we really haven't heard anything un about this show, because it was kind of unceremoniously, they pulled the plug on it, and even though it has a perfect ending, literally, the final moments of this show, um, the last episode starts off with Captain and uh, Iron Man having a conversation about Iron Man not knowing what how people are going to remember the Avengers when they're gone. And the end of the episode shows exactly how people are going to remember them. I it's, mm, it's perfect. It's so good. Um, really, it was, it was the final bit of Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes news that we were ever going to get. Until recently. Uh, Christopher Yost, or Yost, I'm sorry. Um, recently in honor of the 10-year an uh, anniversary of the show, just like this episode is, um, started posting on Twitter. And he's been very active on Twitter. He continues to work in animation and does incredible job helming these episodes and helming these shows that, um, though I don't know if they've reached the heights of Earth's Mightiest Heroes, they are absolutely worth your time to at least check out. Um, started talking about this show. You can tell he loves this show. You can tell that he misses the show. And you can tell that he wanted to tell a season three. Uh, he's been throwing up the hashtag uh, Avengers EMH10, which I implore you to use. Um, whether you're talking about just the show, whether you want to talk about this episode, feel free to use that. Um, but he's talked about before in interviews that there was potential for season three. And the kind of the tagline he used for it was magic and mutants when someone asked what the uh storylines would be for um 
for a potential season three. That's what he said, Magic and Mutants, which to me teased ideas like Doctor Strange, X-Men, and Scarlet Witch. And that was pretty much it until this past week when he just dove in head first into telling you exactly what the stories would be, what comics they drew from, and what they were going to be episode by episode. So I am going to go through it right now here with you episode by episode, you can go onto his Twitter at YOST and you can see him kind of going through this beat by beat, tweet by tweet, but I am going to kind of compile it all here. So if you want to just have a one-stop shop for it, you can check this out. You can listen to this. And basically he separated it just like he said before in that interview that first half of the season would be magic. Second half of the season would be mutants. And through each of his tweets, he went episode by episode showing which episode would um, would take influence by which comic. And right out the gate, in the first episode of season three, we would have been introduced to Doctor Strange and Dormammu. Um, establishing immediately that, yeah, you guys have been to space, but you don't know anything about the magic going on here on Earth. Uh, episode two would give us the introduction to Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, who are just... They need to be Avengers, and in the and I can absolutely see them working on this show. Um, the two of them being kind of cast out of the Brotherhood of Mutants and looking for some redemption. Uh, episode three would deal with Iron Man uh, facing down Doctor Doom, possibly more uh, Fantastic Four involvement as well. And then episode four would involve the return of the Enchantress, basically kind of teeing up um, Surtur being the big bad for this half of the season. Uh, and we ended last or we ended season 2 really not having uh a resolution with Enchantress or with Surtur because as the as uh the final episode that she was part of which I believe is Powerless um she's still essentially a servant to Surtur. And so this would kind of she would essentially be the herald for Surtur and basically essentially let everyone know, "Hey, Stuff's going down. You better get yourself ready. And then episode five, and I think this is really interesting as well, um, would involve, I can only assume, a crossover between members of the Avengers, members of the X-Men, as well as Spider-Man teaming up against Kulan Gath. And who is Kulan Gath, you might say, if you're not familiar with Conan the Barbarian? Well, he's basically just kind of your run-of-the-mill sorcerer. Um, he was uh, essentially, you can... If you want to make a parallel, he was Conan's Mandarin, dealing with sorcery and magic and all that stuff. But uh, this specific issue, and I can't remember the actual issue number off the top of my head, um, essentially involved an imposter of Kuman Gath summoning this uh, orb over Manhattan, trapping certain heroes in an alternate reality where Spider-Man was killed. I don't know if they'd go that far here, but I think this would be a great almost intro to the X-Men and Spidey uh, teaming up with uh, members of the Avengers as they fought off this magic being, probably uh, featuring Doctor Strange as well. Uh, episode 6, I think, is really interesting. The comic that he put up for this uh, features Vision facing off with Colossus of the X-Men on the cover, um, which I think would be great. I have always loved Colossus. I've got a soft spot for him. So the two of them kind of going up against each other, I think would be really interesting. Episode seven would be the tale of Throg. The, uh, the tale when Loki turns Thor into a frog. Um, I love it. 
I think it's great. I think that the Earth's Mightiest Heroes team would have been able to execute an incredible Throg story. Um, episode 8, though, would be about the Squadron Supreme slash Squadron Sinister, and I have been waiting for them to do that. They did introduce a Squadron Supre- a version of the Squadron Supreme in uh, Avengers Assemble. They did a fine enough job with that, but I really... Um, I'm interested to see how they would have utilized the original designs and original um, spirit of that team on this show. Uh, episode 9 would have seen most likely Hawkeye go west uh, to form the West Coast Avengers, whether it was uh, as an established team, just a one-off team-up like we've seen before uh, with uh, different characters, but that would have been really fun. And then episode 10 would introduce us to the High Evolutionary and would lead, I believe, straight into episode 11, which would involve the revelation of his connection to Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Wondagore Mountain. Um, this, I think, also probably may uh, lead into the seeds for a Scarlet Witch and Vision romance, which uh, we've seen adapted i think very fairly well in the mcu but everything would come full stop with the two-part finale episodes 12 and 13 of uh or mid-season finale rather of season three which would be ragnarok and surter parts one and two uh where surter does not come to play he came to slay and specifically slay all of Asgard. And you would see, uh, kind of in the same way that Secret Invasion was for Season 2, as he said on Twitter, um, this be like this big climactic thing for Thor, and it really essentially being the cutoff point, where we would see now, as we head into the second half of Season 3, the mutants half, the shift from magic into... Uh, dealing with Marvel's Merry Mutants. Because in the very first episode, Avengers would officially meet the team of X-Men. It's unclear on what roster this team would be, though I would probably lean into the John Byrne era since we've seen Wolverine already. Uh, Colossus has made a debut. So kind of in that way, probably Storm, Cyclops, um, that era. And I think that's great. Um I have a soft spot, soft spot for the original group, and this and the cover that he chose does feature the original team of X Men. But I think the Burn era would work a little bit better. Um, episode two would just punch you right in the face with uh, Avengers dis. Avengers Disassembled, and uh, the formation of Cap's Kooky Quartet, um, officially because the ep- the issue that he used wasn't really the Avengers disassembled storyline, but I could see him using kind of a, I could see uh, Yost and his team using a similar um, feel to get the result of Cap's Kooky Quartet. We have, at that point, all of the original uh, members as part of the Avengers, Cap, uh, Scarlet Witch, uh, Quicksilver, and Hawkeye. So I could see them doing that for a couple episodes as they shift their focus into the stars, with episode three being the debut of Nova, bringing Nova into the show, that would have been great, as well as episode four bringing the debut of the Eternals. I think that would have been a great... um, 
a really, I think, awesome uh, juxtaposition with this new, uh, more uh, underdog team dealing with these cosmic level stories that would have been a lot of fun to really get into. Uh, Episode 5 would feature, I would assume, the return of Thor, who I would assume goes into some kind of uh, break from the Avengers following the events of Ragnarok and Surtur. Maybe he goes to uh, lead lead Asgard with uh, Odin possibly falling. Maybe he... um, has to rebuild Ragnarok going on who knows but he would return against the juggernaut which I would absolutely love um just have him duke it out for for an entire episode beginning to end take my money episode six would see the return of Kang as well as Ramatut Ramatut however you want to pronounce it uh we got a tease for Ramatut in the um in the season two Kang episode, I believe it was the new Avengers episode where he went, he encountered the Council of Kangs. And I don't know if they would use that version of Kang or they would kind of install a new version of Ramatut for this. But I think that'd be really cool. Again, taking this more underdog um, team and bringing them into dealing with Kang would be really, really cool. Uh, episode 7, we would see the prologue for Avengers versus X-Men with the debut of the Phoenix, introducing the Phoenix Force into the show, um, and probably bringing the characters back together at least for a moment, um, and kind of letting them know, hey, this is coming, we're going to have to deal with this. Uh, episode 9, I think, would probably revisit the Guardians of the Galaxy, as well as now Nova and possibly the Eternals, with the debut of the Annihilation Wave. Uh, the comic he used is smacked out of the cover of the original Annihilation Conquest, which I love. Um, Annihilation Conquest was the story that kind of brought us the modern version of the Guardians of the Galaxy, so I have no doubt that this would probably do that, um, alongside bringing in Nova and really telling that story. Uh, episode 10 would bring back the Defenders, not those ones. The original Defenders, that being Hulk, Strain- Doctor Strange, and Namor. I could see uh post the disassembling of episode two or um i guess that would be episode 15 of this uh of this season that hulk would kind of go off on his own like he did with the uh near the end of season two um and it would put him right up with with us Doctor Strange, and I'm assuming maybe a debuting Namor, the two of them um, duking it out, I'm sure. And then uh, the last three episodes of this season would be a, a three-parter AVX, Avengers vs. X-Men, probably done much better than the comic, um, just because I know that that team would have been able to take something like this and really make it sing. Um Episode, uh, let's look at this, so 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Uh, episode 24 would have been um, just the full-on opening salvo of this battle, the two groups using the world as their uh, playground and their disagreement over the Phoenix Force. I'm assuming that Scarlet Witch may take a center stage instead of Hope Summers, because that's just a lot. But um, this would lead into part two, episode 25, which would be House of M. 
Oh my god, what they could have done with House of M. I could absolutely see the ending of episode 24 leaving with the cliffhanger of Scarlet Witch finally losing it um, and bringing about House of M for all of episode 25. That would have been incredible. And then the uh, conclusion of episode 25 leading into the Avengers vs. X-Men finale where the uh, Phoenix Force is on full display, possibly uh, with Scarlet Witch in tow or Jean Grey. I don't know. Um, Jean Grey wasn't really part of AVX. She was dead, I think, at that point. And then Scarlet Witch really only came down to AVX at the end. So she would probably be the character I would see with the most contention. And this season would end with uh, possibly the death of Charles and Xavier. I don't know. Um, but you would see them get that resolution. So I think that's incredible. I would love to see this. Um, Yost has made it very clear on uh, on Twitter that these are just what he would have loved to see and what he the direction he would have taken the series, but it is not, unfortunately, the uh, showcase of what a season three will look like. Um, we can hope, we can dream, um, and that's what I think really that hashtag Avengers EMH10 is all about. But in conclusion, taking all of the information we've gone over today, all of the um, all of the highs, all of the lows, the uh, cutting short of it tragically before it could um, really uh, start to get into some of the more fantastical stuff that the show could touch on. Um, the question remains, did Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes accomplish its goals? And as we've gone through here, it's a resounding yes. They paid homage to Lee and Kirby. They were able to utilize all eras of comics and would have continued to do so if they had gotten a season three. And they built out a fully fleshed Marvel world when it came to, um, Marvel Comics or Marvel Comics, Marvel Cosmic, the street-level characters, the X-Men, the Fantastic Four, and they would have gone on to make more of the X-Men, dive into the magic realm, and honestly, 10 years later, looking at this, watching it again for this episode, God, it still holds up. It is a timeless show. It really is. Does it use the original, sometimes dated versions of these characters when it comes to the designs? Maybe. But I tend to look at it as the iconic versions of these characters. These are characters who uh, fought. These are characters who had successes, dizzying highs and crushing lows. They went through arcs. They had triumphs. They had torments. Um, these characters really grew and changed throughout this. And it stands today as a fantastic watch and doesn't show its age whatsoever. Um, honestly, just go back and watch it. If you haven't watched it yet, I've tried to do my best at just giving light spoilers, but, um, there are episodes that I haven't even talked about that are so great that you need to go back and watch. It's on Disney plus. If you have Disney plus, they have the entire show. The second season's order is weird for some reason. They put powerless at the end of the, of season two as like the finale instead of, um, Avengers assemble. But if you just take that like I did you just watch that um before uh all of the Kree stuff absolutely does what it's supposed to be um but it is so good it is a show that showed the best of these characters even sometimes when they were at their worst and really was in my opinion one of the 
greatest entry points to Marvel for anybody. If somebody wants to get into Marvel, but they don't have the patience or the money to jump into comics, show them this show. If they want to experience more than that these characters have to offer after watching the MCU, because we are currently in an MCU drought, have them watch this show. And if they just want a cartoon, a piece of media, a piece of art that tells great stories with incredible characters that grow and change over time, show them this show. Because in my opinion, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes is the last great Marvel cartoon and is unequivocally the best Avengers cartoon ever. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing season two of The Boys, namely episode number five entitled We Gotta Go Now. And this episode is doing everything that the previous episodes are doing, which is just building the tension slowly between literally everyone on the cast. And what I think is so surprising to me about this so far is that they're doing such a great job at building off of the first season and making these characters even more compelling. There are characters that I enjoyed but would have liked to get a closer look at that I am just fully on board with their development right now. Uh, specifically A-Train. I am so invested in A-Train this season, and I, I liked him in the first season, but he was more of a plot point than really a character, and this season they're really tackling some stuff with him that I, I love and I'm really enjoying. Everybody's just kind of firing on all cylinders right now, but let's go ahead and dive into the episode. Uh, the episode episode starts, and I thought this was so clever, um, they're currently filming the, the movie Dawn of the Seven, um, clearly just ripping off, like, DCEU, um, uh, what's it called, um, Ah, the imagery, the symbolism from them, even, like, the font and the poster and everything, the color grading is hilarious, and the most... I think blatant ripoff, which I I know that they did lovingly, and I I feel it's amazing. Um, there's a point within like the first couple minutes where Maeve kind of walks off set to meet up with Homelander, and Homelander's like, "Huh, hey, how are you liking that uh, Joss rewrite? I think it really sings." And I just I had to pause the episode because I was laughing so hard. Um, it's so good. It's so good. It's so self-referential and this is exactly where the show shines where it kind of puts a mirror up against the current like superhero landscape and it's just like hey people suck <laughs> but like one of the big um 
plot points when it comes to this film is that uh, it's basically Vought's way to uh, backdoor into A-Train's retirement, or him leaving the Seven at least, and it's really... The through line of this was A-Train trying to come to terms with that, trying to, I guess, rage against the dying of the light when it came to, like, he's rewriting his final scene to leave it, like, ambiguous on whether he's really leaving. But um, at the very end of the episode, he does do the scene, and it's heartbreaking because you know that it's not what he wants. He doesn't want to uh, be kicked off of the Seven, but they're forcing him out, and it's really sad, and I can't wait to see what they do with him next. Uh, This film is also, they're using this quote-unquote Joss rewrite to really make it just like punch you in the face with the fact that Maeve's gay um which was another plot point in this in this episode that I really enjoyed um the uh that classic duo from Vought who try to spin everything is trying to find a way to uh market um Maeve's new uh new to the wider world sexuality and I think it's really cool watching the corporate I I think some of the most interesting parts of this show and of this world are how they incentivize and how they monetize and how they uh, show the corporate side of being a superhero and it's something that this show does so well that um, it makes it sometimes even more interesting than any of the like the fight scenes or the action scenes which I really enjoy Um, and they aren't, you know, A-Train and Maeve, they're not the only people who are having a tough time on the 7 right now. Uh, Homelander is going through a lot with his image. He's like, start. the walls are kind of starting to close in on him. There's this video that gets released of him, you know, killing a terrorist, but also killing a civilian at the same time. And it's, it it's, there's this scene where I legit... Th- like my mouth or my jaw dropped because he, you know, shows up to this protest and he gets so fed up that he lasers an entire, uh, you know, it had to be hundreds of people. And I just, I was like, there's no way, there's no way they're going to do this. There's no way that they would let that happen. And of course it does end up being, you know, one of those dream sequences, those mini dream sequences. But I just, I thought it was so well done in the way that it was almost, um, forcing you as an audience member to like re- reckon with like, oh man, what if he's really doing this right now? What is going to happen next? So I, I enjoyed that. Um, in other news, the seven, uh, the deep officially does get married. We see that he is, you know, on the path to rehabbing his image and it kind of crosses paths with the Maeve storyline where the two of them might be conspiring with each other later on down the line. So I really liked that. Um, the big kind of, uh, plot point in this episode though, was Billy going home. Uh, Butcher goes home. We get to see terror again, which I loved. Um, it's, it's always a good time to have Butcher and terror together. Uh, but all is not well because, uh, Black Noir has been hunting him the entire time. And I love the lethality of Black Noir. Like anytime he shows up somewhere, it's basically like scorched earth. Like they go into this like little bunker underneath, um, Butcher's aunt's house. And when they come back up, the entire house is just torched and just cinders. So I really liked that. Uh, we also got a reveal that Butcher had a brother at one point, a brother who, um, 
I guess, is very similar to Huey in both his mannerisms and his effect on Butcher. So this was a great episode to kind of get uh, Butcher and Huey back on the same page. And this was really the first episode where all of the boys, or at least the boys that were present, that being uh, M.M., Butcher, and Huey, were on the same page because they had to go up against Black Noir. And the way that they got around him was really clever. And I thought it's it's going to open up a lot of avenues going forward. Um, we also got a little sidetrack with the uh, with the remaining members of the boys, with Kimiko and uh, Frenchie. Uh, Kimiko just wrecks shop inside of this uh, restaurant, killing these Russians, like ripping this guy's face off. It's gory, and I love it. It's another thing that the show does so well. And then the kind of the... Um, the confrontation in the church between Frenchie and Kimiko I thought was really well done. And um, Frenchie's on a weird path this season. I thought he had a very clear through line the first season. Um, and this one, it, it's a little more shaky. So I'm interested to see where they go with that. And then finally... Um, Stormfront and Starlight are officially in that kind of slot that Starlight and A-Train were at the beginning of the season, where they each have dirt on each other, but they don't know when to um, when to drop those bombs. So this guy, this game of chess, I think, is going to be really interesting, especially with uh, Starlight revealing to Stormfront that she knows that she used to be Liberty. Um, but the episode ends with uh, with with Stormfront and uh, Homelander. Um, Homelander officially decides to take uh, Stormfront's help in rehabbing his own image and getting him back to uh, in the good graces of the general public. And then the two of them just have a big old sadistic BDSM sex scene. So um, I didn't know that that was where they were going to go, but... I, it, you know, it makes sense for the characters. They're both so messed up that this is really the only way that they could get pleasure. Um, but that is going to be a really big challenge for the boys going forward in this season. I th- I'm assuming we only have eight episodes in this season, just like last season. So we've only got three episodes left, and um, there's a lot that the boys are going to have to contend with. So I'm, I'm excited to see what they do next episode. So that's going to wrap it up for uh, the weekly review this week tune in next week for the next episode episode number six but for now we're going to roll right on into this week's comics countdown welcome back to this week's comics countdown this is the segment of our show where i talk about the comics that i think you should be picking up this week whether it's at your local comic book shop and comiXology or however you get your comics these are the ones i think you should definitely take a look at but before we get to this week's books we got to take a look back at last week's books with the geek explain pick of the week of last week and i'm not gonna lie to you um these books the books last week were really, really good. It was, um, it was super tough to figure out what my, um, what my pick would be. Um, at certain points I thought it was going to be Batman 99. At certain points I thought it was going to be actually Iron Man number one. I really enjoyed Iron Man number one. And then there was this dark horse that came out of nowhere that I didn't even have on the list that surprised me. It was, uh, X-Men snapshots number one. Um, that Tom Riley art, man, I love Tom Riley's art. It's so good. Um, but the book that ended up catching my eye and the book that really, um, 
that I just enjoyed from cover to cover was uh, Thor number seven. This was written by Donny Cates with art by my boy Aaron Cuter, another person whose art I absolutely adore. Um, this book was just so good. I was really, um, I'm really interested in this. This is part one of two for the new Hammerfall arc where uh, Thor is starting to realize that Mjolnir is a little heavier than it used to be, though it might not be that heavy for everyone else. So I really loved what they did with this episode. This episode. I love what they did with this issue. I can't wait to pick up the next Thor issue. Um, Donny Cates' Thor has been really, really good. And I, I'm just, I'm excited. Every single time I pick a new issue up from that run, I am consistently surprised with the directions that they go. So I can't wait to pick up issue number eight, and I absolutely think that uh, Thor number seven is worth picking up. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. This week, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six books for you to pick up. I'm really excited about all of these. Um, Some of them I am just over the moon about. Some of them I just can't wait to pick up. So let's go ahead and just dive into it. Each book, of course, I will be going over uh, their title, the creative team and the synopsis of each issue of course every synopsis will be accompanied by synopsis voices so uh just be prepared for that so if this is your first time joining us uh so let's go ahead and just dive straight into the issues um first up we have batman superman number 12 written by joshua williamson with art by newcomer max rayner um i'm not familiar with max rayner's art but if it's continuing on the trend that it's been going, it's it's going to be good art. I, I think this book has been, if nothing else, very pretty to look at. Um, the artists that uh, Williamson keeps bringing on for this book have been top-notch every single time. And I'm really looking forward to this arc and seeing just what the art is going to look like for this one. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Batman and Superman are missing. Is there more to their disappearance than meets the eye? As the heroes of Gotham City and Metropolis try to put the pieces together, they uncover a weirdly chaotic plot devised by Brainiac. What deranged mind could have corrupted the most dangerous computer in the known galaxy? We sure hope it wasn't the Joker. So, this is... You know, I've talked about it before when... um when going over these books, this is exactly what the book should be. Um, the first arc was very heavily about like, oh, we're setting up death metal. We've got the Batman who laughs and all the stuff that's going on with that. But the book Batman Superman should be about the villains of Batman and Superman's worlds coming together to take them both out. Um, I think the Zod and uh, Ra's al Ghul arc is probably my favorite from it from this book so far um i've been really enjoying it and i'm looking forward to seeing just who they pair up with brainiac i kind of hope it's not the joker but we'll see next up we have x of swords or ten of swords creation number one written by jonathan hickman and teeny howard with art by pepe Larraz. uh this is bringing together pepe Larraz and jonathan hickman again for the first time i think off the top of my head since house of x powers of x powers of 10 sorry um and uh, this is the intro to the next big X event. So if you want to know what's going on with this, I am just, I'm looking at the cover of this right now and it says part one of 22 and I can't, I just can't. Um, 
I just, I'm someone who I'm not picking up all of the X-Men books, and this issue is going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting to get me to pick up all 22, all 22 parts of this story. But I still think it's worth the time, especially with how they've set it up. So uh, let's go ahead and dive into this really, um, really actually long uh, synopsis. So let's go ahead and dive into that here. X of Swords, Chapter 1. A Tower. A Mission. A Gathering of Armies. So yeah, like I said, really descriptive. Really... <laughs> um, there, there's a part of me that loves really like vague um, solicits. So I, I like it. I'm going to be picking this up, if for nothing else, than to just kind of get an idea of where they're going. So next up, we have Suicide Squad number nine, written by Tom Taylor, with art by Bruno Redondo. Uh, this is it. This is the big issue that they have been teasing since the beginning of this run. Um, all hell is about to break loose here, because this is the issue where they are supposed to kill Deadshot. Um, I don't know how they're going to do it. I am really intrigued to see how they do it. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis here. This issue is the shock and death of Deadshot. The man who never misses has been on the front lines of Task Force X since its inception. Bomb in his neck, gun in his hand. He's seen teammates blow up and countries fall. He's faced down heroes and villains alike. Now the Suicide Squad has one final mission. Bring down the man who enslaved them, then put a bounty on their heads when they escaped. Ted Cord. But to finish the job, the world's deadliest assassin will have to do the one thing he's never done for the cause. Die. So this is, this is a big part of the um, Taylor Redondo Suicide Squad run. Uh, we now know that I think it's only going to be 12 issues, so this is the... This is that heading into the final act where they are going to just be balls to the wall. Everything is happening. Um, they have not been shy about killing people during this run. And if you haven't been picking this up, I would implore you, go back and read the previous eight issues. It's been really, really good. Though what can you expect when you have Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo together? So I'm looking forward to this. This should be really, really good. Next up, we have Daredevil number 22, written by Chip Zdarsky, with art by Francesco Mobili. I probably mispronounced that and I apologize but I'm really excited about this the book has been so good so far I am going to of course miss Chiquetto on art he is still going to be doing covers as far as I know but um the cover for this is really interesting it's got an Iron Man mask with two devil horns protruding out of it so only good things could be coming for, <laughs> for Matt Murdock and the rest of uh, Hell's Kitchen this should be good let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here Truth or Dare, Part 2. Still grappling with the blood on his hands, Matt Murdock makes one of the biggest choices of his life. But what effect will Matt's choices have on Daredevil? And what about the people who need him? See why people are talking about Daredevil as one of Marvel's best ongoing series. Including myself. Um, I'm really interested to see where they go with this. Uh, they revealed, if you haven't picked it up yet, the annual that, um, there's been a little bit of, uh, tomfoolery here going on, and now Matt's 
twin brother Mike has been willed into existence. He's not just a uh, fake identity that Matt once used to prove uh, that he wasn't Daredevil. But um, there is going to be some stuff that's going down. So I'm really excited about this. Should be a good time. Next up, as we wind down here, we're coming to one of the big books that I think you should absolutely be picking up, which is The Flash, number 762, uh, written by Joshua Williamson with art by Howard Porter. This is it. This is Joshua Williamson's final Flash issue. It's not the final issue for him writing Flashes, um, as we'll find out in the next uh, installment, the final installment for this week. But this is the big end to his run. 101 issues. 101 issues. The only person from Rebirth who is still writing his book. Um, I think that's incredible. Williamson has absolutely put his mark on the Flash run, just as Jeff Johns and Mark Wade did before him. Um, and the and finish line as an arc, as a send-off, has been one of the strongest stories of his entire run. So I can't wait to pick this up. The cover is simple. It's impactful. Uh, Barry dragging a bloodied uh, Eobard across an all-white cover, I think, is so good. And I can't wait to see how they, how they finish this up. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Finish line finale. Barry Allen and the Reverse Flash race for the last time in this fast-paced conclusion. For years, Eobard Thawne has tormented Barry Allen, and now the Flash knows the only way to win is to make sure the Reverse Flash never runs again. The story years in the making comes to a close as Joshua Williamson finishes his epic 101-issue run on The Flash. So yeah, uh, Finish Line's been fantastic. It's brought back the entire Flash family with the exception of Wally West, um, as we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, they have their reunion in Death Metal, which is currently going on. But um, this is going to be a hell of a send-off. I can't wait to see how this finale shapes up. And then the big book of the week for me, the book I think you should absolutely be taking the time to pick up this week, is Dark Knight's Death Metal Speed Metal Number 1. Written by Joshua Williamson, art by Eddie Barrows. This is the book I've been waiting for since they announced all of these uh, Death Metal tie-ins. It's got... All of your favorite speedsters from every single era. You got your Jay Garricks. You got your Barry Allens. You got your Wally Wests. Two of them. You got Wally West. You got Wallace West. And they are running for their lives and the existence of the multiverse. So um, let's just go ahead and dive in the synopsis and then we'll talk about the book. It's the drag race from hell. Taking place after the events of Dark Knight's Death Metal Number 3, the darkest night is after Wally West and his Dr. Manhattan powers. Thankfully, Wally has backup in the form of Barry Allen, Jay Garrick, and Wallace West. It's a knockdown, dragout race through the wastelands as the Flash family tries to stay steps ahead of the darkest night and his lightning nights. So that sounds intense. Uh, <laughs> Um, the, as we all know, if you've been keeping up with Dark Knight's Death Metal, uh, the Batman Who Laughs has become the darkest knight, and this cover looks pretty intense. Uh, we, we've seen before with solicits and everything that there have been these, like, um, 
zombie Black Flash-esque versions of the Flash, just like an army of them chasing down our four leads. But um, now that we know that they're called the Lightning Knights, that's pretty intense. Um, I'm really excited about this. If for nothing else than the Eddie Barrows art, I am a huge Eddie Barrows mark. I love his art. And combining him with um, some of my favorite characters in all of DC Comics, Wally West and Jay Garrick, uh, this is going to be a good one. This is absolutely going to be good. The uh, tie-ins to Death Metal have been really strong, I think, so far. Um, in some cases, stronger than the main book. Um I don't know, uh, but I've been really enjoying them, and this is pivotal. This is one that is so important to the main book because they've established in the main book if the Darkness Knight catches Wally and he takes his Dr. Manhattan powers, that's it. That's game over. They're done. So this is just as important as the main book. So if you are trying to keep up with this, even if you've skipped the other tie-ins, I'm personally not picking up the tie-ins for Justice League. Um... This is one that you don't want to miss, especially for that Eddie Barrow's art. Oh, my God. And this is also Joshua Williamson writing The Flashes once again. I don't know if there's going to be more speed metal issues or not. I'm not sure. Um, but if nothing else, this is going to be a wild ride for sure. And that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Batman Superman number 12, X of Swords or Ten of Swords. This is exhausting. Uh, Creation number 1, Suicide Squad number 9, Daredevil number 22, and a double feature of The Flash number 762 and Dark Knight's Death Metal, Speed Metal number 1. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast, please subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice. And also, feel free to give us a rating and review. really helps us out, just kind of gets us uh, word of mouth, helps us a lot. We're still kind of a smaller podcast, so getting us out into the uh, stratosphere and into the orbit of listeners just like you really, really does help. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts slash whatever they want to uh, call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can join the likes of such esteemed gentlemen as Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, and Matt Draper. Want to give a big thanks to them for leaving their rating and review. Also, Give us a follow on social media because we're on there as well. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, we're at Pod. That's at GeeksplainedPod. Um, if you want to keep up with us, keep up with everything that's going on with the Geeksplained podcast, that would be the place to go. And finally, you can also send us emails to geeksplain at gmail.com if you want to be part of our Geeksplained mailbag where... Uh, I talk comics, you can ask me questions, um, and I would love to have those conversations with you guys. So, uh, no Geeksplained Mailbag this week. We have had a packed episode, <laughs> um, but feel free to send in those emails, and I will definitely read them out on here. Um, this episode means a lot to me. Um, not only is it about one of my favorite cartoons, favorite pieces of superhero media of all time, but it's, you know, it is me getting to gush about something I love. This year has been terrible to a lot of people, um, and I look for, just like other people do, look for things that are allowing me to get away from it, to escape a little bit, and also to, you know, 
takes some of the burden off of my shoulders. And Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes absolutely does that. Getting lost in this world and these characters and these stories is exactly what the original comics were created to do. To take your mind off of things that are going on and to tell you good stories with great characters. And this show absolutely does that. Um, if you want to talk to me about what your favorite Earth's Mightiest Heroes sh- episodes are feel free to do that i would love to have that conversation with you i will talk about this show at any time for any reason i will take any excuse to talk about it and celebrating it 10 years later is just a it's a true honor and a privilege so um that is going to do it for this week's episode uh tune in next week the last week of dis of december (laughs) see that's what this year has done it's just it's mixed up my entire um my entire concept of time but next week uh look for a brand new episode of the geek explained podcast for the final week of september not quite the same geek time because this episode dropped early we normally drop every episode on wednesdays so look for that next week but for now for geek explained this is eric zana thank you very much for listening stay safe and we will see you next time 